Why is Worf the one who's the first officer here? Like, Jordy, Troy, and Crusher all outrank him. And Troy, well, Crusher has actually had command experience and is on the command track. Troy, she'll get there. LaForge does have command experience, and he is also on the command track. He will eventually become Captain LaForge, so... WTF. <laughs> In this case, is all I can say about it. Whatever. Uh, I actually don't have much to say about this. I did look into it more. I did check the source I mentioned. No information on why it's a two-parter. What's funny is Moore, who was writing this one, was just running out of ideas completely. He mentions that he was going on empty by the end of it. This is also interesting because the psionic resonator was originally supposed to be a large-scale weapon, like a millions killer. That's important because it helps to distinguish things. I'll get to that in a bit, though. So, <clears throat> I mentioned the B-plot of Worf and Data. I didn't remember how non-existent it was. Worf is rude to Data on the bridge in public, which is unacceptable. Data then pulls him over and reads him the riot act, and is like, what the hell are you doing? Now, what's funny is he starts reading him the riot act in what I consider to be completely the wrong direction. It is your job to follow my orders no matter what. Uh, no, that's actually not the job of a first officer. Sorry. Now, <clears throat> it is the job of the first officer to not publicly question the captain unless something's seriously wrong. And it is also the job of the first officer to not be a rude dick, which is both of the things that Worf did. Worf then did apologize. And then what's really weird is Data's like, I'm sorry if I've ended our friendship. What? Over a minor disagreement? Where does this come from? What does that have to do with anything? And Worf's like, no, it's my fault. I want to still be friends. Huh? <laughs> okay, whatever, let's move on. So Worf then offers an idea, and I, I just want to mention something. I like seeing the different command dynamics here. What I mean by that is what we've effectively played musical chairs with some of the roles in the ship, and I like it. I think it adds a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit of additional fresh life into certain scenes. And I think we could have seen how different like Data's command style is or Worf's command style is based on you know how they interact with situations. Like In short, it's kind of similar to the Lower Decks idea. Typical episode, slightly different crew setup, which means they respond in a different way. Just, just ways to keep things a little bit fresh instead of, you know, the typical. But anyways... Um, there's this scene, so, okay, James Worthy, who, if you don't know, he used to play for, I believe, the Lakers, and he's, you know, a very good basketball player. He, he expressed an interest, like, I really like Star Trek, is there any chance I could be, and he happened to get into a completely random interview with someone who happened to be connected at Paramount, and they were like, yeah, we, we actually have a, a slot for someone right now. So they got him in, and of course it works really well because he's six foot nine. Now... I'm kind of a tall guy, relatively speaking. He is a full nine inches up from me. It's it's going off the camera. I think to be right about to here-ish, give or take. Pretty much a full head taller than me. They also do some camera tricks with tall boots and variant terrain to try and make him look even taller than he is. So the whole effect is actually very effective. And he does a decent job of this role, so I just thought I'd mention that. For someone, you know, with no acting training or whatever. I sure hope their carpet auto-cleans, though, right? Pouring the drink. I, I like to think they just had a bucket underneath him to capture it, because, honestly, 
cleaning out red stains and carpet really is the worst. That would probably be just a replace the carpet situation if they actually just poured it onto the ground. So, meanwhile, Baran is continuing to be a bad leader. It's going to take me five hours to do this. Okay, you've got three or I'll kill you. What? <laughs> That's not how that works. I know you've seen the Scotty manual, but that really is not how that works. <sighs> the idea of Vulcan extremists makes a weirdly large amount of sense to me. And I want to explain why, if I might. Logic. I'm going to quote myself here. Logic is not the path to the truth. It is a path to a truth. In short, logic can and has been twisted. I say the word logic a lot myself, you know, logically speaking or logically deduced or whatever, but the problem is all you need is improper variables or an improper equation, or both, and all of a sudden your logical deduction can lead to illogical conclusions. And it makes perfect sense to me that there would be certain Vulcans who would basically look at this and say, logically speaking, these negative impacts have happened as a result of our interaction with alien races. Therefore, we should stop interacting with them. Cool. I'm not sure how they think the Toxu Thought Weapon, I know that's not what it's called, I forget what it's called, the, the Psionic Resonator is going to accomplish that, but whatever, at least the idea of Vulcan extremists does make sense to me. And I'm sure they'll take that idea and run with it when we get to Enterprise. <clears throat> they also, it's actually funny. He mentions by memory the Stone of Gaul. And she's like, you've heard of it? Oh, yes. Savik then... I'm going to call her Savik, by the way, for reasons I'll get to in a minute. Savik then says, this is one of the most devastating weapons ever conceived. That's important. I want you to remember her saying that, okay? Because we've seen planet-destroying weapons. We've seen star-destroying weapons. No pun intended. Um, we, we've seen a lot of crap, Right? This, this is one of the most devastating weapons ever conceived, okay? Just keep that in mind. So then, the Enterprise doesn't detect the ship at short range, despite everything. They don't detect the transporter beams beaming people onto the ship. By the way, just as a reminder, that actually happened in Rascals, of all things. So if Rascals can keep track of that, I think they can keep track of that here. They don't have an intruder alert in general, which is something they also have for un unidentified people just suddenly being on the ship for any reason. And they don't detect phaser fire, which is also something they can detect. I know we kind of make fun of Starfleet security, but this is unexcusable. Anyways, I am glad they pick up on things, finally. Oh my god, is he dead? Yes, you totes killed him. He's mega dead, sir. I'm kidding, of course. She does actually play along rather well. So then they get the hell off, and this then leads to Picard, who outmaneuvers Baron. Baron's like, oh, I'm going to kill you for this. <laughs> evil laughter. Evil laughter. Oh, and then he, he dies because he kills himself. How? I don't. Not why. I know why. Uh, Galen, Picard, swapped the thing, so that instead of doing him, it does himself. This actually brings two, up two very big questions. Question number one. Why does he still have his own neural implant on? I know what you're thinking. It must be very hard to get rid of. Yeah, you probably need proper medical facilities, which you'd think the captain of a ship would have access to, especially with his share of the cut. And he's apparently been in charge of the crew long enough, so why did he never get rid of his own thing? Problem number two. How exactly did Picard swap the transponders? That's never answered. 
Oh, yeah, by the way, problem three, and I kind of referenced this last time. He gives them a very large chunk of time to do something before he reaches for the belt thing. Like, we're talking almost a minute and a half of just him chatting with his hand nowhere near the belt. If they just jumped him, they could have just taken it away from him. Bam, problem solved. Or they could have just shot him, which takes about three seconds on the outside. How did this guy stay in charge this long? Now, I do want to comment on one thing, which is actually amusing, because Picard, then, his first act is he destroys the torture thing. And then he effortlessly and smoothly slides into the position of command. Of course he does. He's Picard. But I do like how he ensures loyalty that easily and effortlessly. In fact, even when they find... It's not until they find out he's Starfleet that they're like, Aha! We must turn on him! You know. Sure. But, uh... This then leads to Savik, totally Savik, who's trying to maneuver around Picard. And she is a terrible liar who has no idea what she's talking about, no idea what she's doing. Yeah, he, he clearly sees right through her, pretty much from the word go. Now... You notice we're just barreling through the episode. Not a lot happens in this episode. This is a pretty Voyager episode. Part one was a lot better, I think. Part two is just kind of, eh. See, because the problem is the whole crux of the episode resides on this weapon. Here, I'll use an apple slice. Oh, God, it's green. I wonder what it's going to look like. Anyways, so she's got this apple slice. And you probably think I'm just picking this up because it's nearby. But no, I'm doing this on purpose because this would be a pretty pathetic weapon. It would be legitimately hard to hurt someone with this. And that's what the sonic resonator is. Notice the limitations of this thing. It's slow. It takes several long seconds to activate. It is very limited in scope. She can only do it to one person at a time. In fact, it actually irritated me that she goes to kill one of the mercs. And it takes like ten seconds to kill him. And then she turns on the other merc who this whole time has just been staring in horror with a gun in her hand, pointed at Savik. And then it slowly kills her. So, limited scope, very slow, limited range. Also, it takes effort to actually do, as it's clear as she has to actually push herself into it in order for it to actually happen. I'm pretty sure a knife would be more effective than this stupid thing. One of the most devastating weapons ever conceived my ours. This is actually pathetic. This is, this is actually disgusting. This is to the point... The only way this makes any kind of sense is if we assume that, this, that, that Talara, or whatever her name is, Tapal, whatever freaking actual name is, is a moron in-universe. That she really is this stupid. That she really does think that this pea shooter is one of the most devastating weapons ever developed. You remember how I mentioned that in the original draft this thing was supposed to be on a much larger scale? That it could kill millions? That makes a little more sense. If this is basically a psychic bomb, which will destroy everyone in a huge radius, okay, that makes a lot more sense. It isn't. A a pea shooter might actually be more effective. At least that'll take your eye out. Now, Moore himself has said that he doesn't like the way it's defeated. Hang on, let me pull a quote out here. He says, uh, oh, where is it? Maybe we just go make this a classic gene kind of a message and go for think happy thoughts and make it something which tied into the backstory of Vulcan and Surak and peace. I thought it would fit in nicely. I'm not sure if it did. It might have just fallen into its own gooiness. Let me go ahead and say I do like this idea. 
because the whole point, it, it, it actually makes sense, and as he points out, it does tie in with the mythos of the series. The idea is the Vulcan stopped using this weapon because it had no purpose. It amplifies aggressive thoughts within the target, therefore that's what it uses to generate the energy to kill them. Very logical. <laughs> no pun intended. And this would also make it very devastating unless you happen to know it's one weakness. A, a one-trick pony kind of a situation. And I know I've said this before, but I've actually rather fond of one-trick pony weapons when it comes to fiction. Because usually they're very, very devastating unless you happen to know how to bypass the trick. And then they become kind of worthless. And that's exactly what this is. At least if it was the bomb and not the, the one-shot stupid. So... I like to just headcanon that it was the bomb, because that really does just make so much more sense. It's either that or she really is just a delusional idiot who knows nothing. I suppose that's possible. She, by her own admission, is not an archaeologist, so maybe she was just like, this will be the ultimate weapon, and it's like a fork. I mean, you can hurt someone with a fork. Not what I would call the ultimate weapon. Now, two things before I talk about one last thing. First of all, it doesn't work on Worf. Worf. The guy who was chomping at the bit to go after this thing and actually was rude and insulting to Data, his friend, on the bridge while on duty. Worf. Sure. Also, there's a, a bit towards the end where there's this... Data, he was just joking. Data, you don't need it. Data! As he's being taken away to the brig. I'm pretty sure Data does get the joke. Because he gets jokes. We've actually seen this recently, Descent Part 1. He gets the joke that Stephen Hawking says that I didn't mention in the episode because it's actually kind of weird to, to explain and it has to do with the fact that uh, Newtonian physics actually can't explain it. You know what, let's just not get into it. Point being, why do I keep calling her Savik? <laughs> now, I don't know if Savikam, who's one of my viewers, uh, actually is going to watch this, but I, I I mean no offense on this one, I swear. But I really like the headcanon that this is Savik. Ignoring the fact that it's the same actress, and that she's playing a Vulcan playing a Romulan, and that she is a misleading intent on getting this ancient artifact, which will enable her to, to cut off alien influences. There's just something wonderfully tragic about the whole lineup of after being spurned by Spock, and after and all the events that happen in between then and now, she goes down this path of um, incorrect logic, as I described earlier. That this whole thing is very logical to her. That it really, that this extremist movement might even have been founded by her. And then, of course, she, she, she's, she's looking for this one thing which she doesn't know and understand fully. So she tries to find this one artifact, and it's going to be the one linchpin to finally allow Vulcans to be free of alien inflow. Oh, it doesn't work. That just adds a wonderful layer of tragedy to the whole thing. And, of course, Spock is still alive at this point in history, so that offers some interesting possibilities, too. Either way, just fun to think about. I just thought I'd mention it. That's all I got. This is a pretty Season 7 episode. So far, so far Season 7 is, hasn't been as bad as I remembered. I'll go ahead and admit that. But I haven't been really impressed, either. So, we'll see what happens next time.